namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sankhang namassami After last Sunday's talk, I got to thinking about the uh, the way I've been contemplating this theme of not making anything out of it. Those who were here will remember. Perhaps it was even two weeks. I think I I, I raised this for contemplation. The the tendency that we have to compulsively react and and make something out of things and and so I emphasized in those talks uh, how useful it is to train our minds to inhibit that tendency that compulsive tendency and to not to not see it as just an exercise of, of uh, willful repression or blind uh, restraint or denial or avoidance, but as a skillful conscious process of training the mind so that we're not just coming from reactivity. And, then, and there's a strength that comes from that. Uh, from when you realize you don't have to make something out of it. It's not an obligation to make something out of your faults. You make a mistake and, or you see something going wrong outside and there's a tendency we sometimes have that we should have an opinion about it. But this compulsiveness of the mind that's always commenting and opinionating on everything doesn't necessarily lead to wisdom or contentment or clarity. But what I realized on uh, reflecting on these talks, and actually I listen every time I give a talk before it gets broadcast, as it does um, the next day, I listen to it. And I listened to this last week's talk, and, and I got the feeling that probably people listening to that could get the impression that this part of practice is encouraging people to not do anything. Yeah. You just sit there. And meditate. You go sit there and watch your navel, as my mother used to talk about those lazy Asians just gazing at their navels all day long and doing nothing about things. You know, just, don't just sit there, do something. I don't know who it was who coined the phrase. I think it was in the late 60s, probably some beat Zen Buddhist who coined the phrase, don't just do something, sit there. Very, I found it very inspiring. But we don't want to go to the extreme of, of uh, holding on to a view that that's all there is to it. That, you know, not making anything out of it is the whole point of practice. That's not the case. There, it is very important to appreciate the Buddha talked about right action. There is a time to do things. 
So if we pick up the teachings in the wrong way, we can't get this impression that all you do is just watch your mind. Just sit there and watch your mind. Whatever's happening out there, whatever's going on, just watch your mind. And, and the way I was talking last week, I, when I listened to it, I felt like it actually was like half a talk. Yeah. Learning how to not make anything out of it is very important. But it's important in the way that it prepares us for action. Because it is a right time to act. There are things that need to be done. And there's a right way to do them from the Buddhist perspective. And there's a wrong way to do them. And and if we do them in the wrong way, well, then it increases suffering. If we do them in the right way, it increases freedom from suffering. And so I want to, uh, this evening, I thought perhaps to contemplate a little bit about right action and how we can cultivate right action and to to perhaps redress perhaps the imbalance that I was I was generating in last week's talk. Mm. The, the idea that not making anything out of it is an end in itself. So, so when we do set out to do something, now from a worldly perspective, you know, say what is right action? From a worldly perspective, you know, if you talk to somebody who, who's committed to worldliness, you know, they're kind of what's conventionally called a sangsara, the kind of the sangsaric story, you're just going round and round in circles. Well, the sangsaric impression of, of right action is, uh, does your action basically increase me and my way? You know, do I get more money out of it? Do I, does it increase my popularity? Does it give me more praise? And also you find that the way the world considers right action is, is only from paying attention outwardly. What do others think about our action? Are we popular as a result of what we do? Does it gain us praise? But that's not the way the Buddha went about doing it. The, the Buddha's teaching is about also, yes, as I saying, recognizing the motivation, where we're coming from, you know, where, what is our intention in our action. And, you know, the worldly way is about you know, what it looks like. There's all these regulations that somebody was mentioned to me yesterday that, that now the health and safety people is introducing these new laws that you... To change a light bulb, you have to have goggles, a mask, and gloves on. And that's without the light bulb but breaking. Now, if the light bulb breaks on the floor, I think you have to fill out a report as well. And <laughs> so our health and safety officer should notice this. Uh, and, uh, and also, uh, this morning, the, we, had, uh, we, had a, we had a major project going on down in the meditation garden. Uh, we, we, we finished the first phase of of the meditation garden down at the, uh, the guest accommodation there, and which was um, moving these huge boulders, these great big boulders, that, uh, these glacial boulders that came from the field over there. The farmer very kindly picked them up in his JCB and delivered them in our car park, and, and they were waiting to be moved. But it took, I think it was six, was it, or seven? Six or seven very strong um, men with good backs, uh, to move these things, you know, like one boulder at a time, 
Uh, it, was, it was a major project. And then somebody came afterwards and told me what the health and safety people say about carrying and lifting these days. And apparently we broke all the rules on this. And, and uh, this is... And, you know, I mean, everybody's laughing because it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, when the health and safety officer turns up and starts telling you, just say, oh, get real. And we do. We say that. Why? Because it is ridiculous. You know, why is it ridiculous? Because the way they're looking at things is just the outer. You know, it's just looking at the outside. It's, just, it's, not, it's not coming from a place of reflection, of, of, of reality. It's coming from just look, trying to control the external. And that's why the law, so much of the law is ridiculous with respect to the policemen and solicitors present. <laughs> it is, so much of it, is, it comes across. I mean, we need laws, and, and the health and safety officer should, of course, pay attention to these things. And since we live in this wonderful country, we've got to abide by these laws. But it doesn't stop them being still, quite frankly, ridiculous. So the, uh, and the reason it's ridiculous, because it's, it's just, it's not, paying attention to the whole thing. Yeah, it's, it's just looking at controlling external circumstances. And so we can't, if we, want to, if we want to know what is right action, we can't just be looking out there. Some people will, you're looking up the books all the time and uh, trying to find out, you know, what did the Buddha, you know, when he gave these precepts, what can you do, what can't you do? You know, regularly people ask me, say, well, am I allowed to drink, you know, just a little bit? You know, it's Christmas and my family want me to drink and is it breaking the precepts if I drink and, and so on? Or, or somebody mentioned the other day that they asked you, if you, you know, you see something lying around and you think it's discarded and you pick it up and then later on you find out that it wasn't discarded, is that stealing? No, it's not stealing. Now, actually, as it happens, you might get into a lot of trouble um, and somebody might sue you or accuse you of stealing and you might have a legal case on your hands and so on and so forth. And so, obviously, we've got to be careful. But from the perspective of right action, no, it's not stealing. Because why? Because there was no intention to take what's not given. You know, so, so all the talk that I was giving about not making anything out of it and preparing the heart and mind. This is what determines whether it's right action or not. You read the uh, classic teachings on the Eightfold Path, as I'm sure you're all familiar with. Yeah, this right action is the, um, what is it, the fourth factor. Yeah, right view, right intention, whatever it is, the second factor. And the third is right speech, and then right action, right livelihood, and so on. Yeah, so the fourth factor, is, it comes right in the middle of the Eightfold Path. Now, Yes, I'm sure as we all understand, this is not a linear progression. We don't start with step one and step two and go through it like that. That's not what the Eightfold Path is about. One process, one dynamic. But for analysis reasons uh, and for training our minds, it is important to recognize that all the factors, all the other seven factors of the Eightfold Path are only right because of right view. Yeah, there's got to be a right view to start off with. You know, we're starting with the basic view. Where are we coming from? Yeah. So that's why there's so much emphasis in Buddhist teachings and why I go on so much about these things because you know, the world will tell us, you know, right action is do this, don't do that, and so on. And so much of our mind is conditioned by that. And what can, you know, we think, what can we get away with? You know, look up the books or talk to somebody or look at the law and say, what can I get away with? That's not... That's not reality, because 
even if we get away with, with false speech like lying or wrong action like stealing, yeah. even if we get away with it in terms of the world and nobody else knows, we know. And so the result will be we will suffer. So in contemplating uh, what is right action, uh, it, is, it is useful, um, very important to understand what the Buddha said about these things and, and to know what the, the texts, the recorded teachings say about these things. And, and with right speech, you know, there's two forms of, of, of physical action. There's the action by speech, action by body. Now, the mental action is a third form of action, but in terms of physical action, we can act with our speech, we can act with our body. And so it's, uh, it's important to, to know, to have a clear understanding of the guidelines the Buddha gave us about these things. So with right speech, you know, see, it's, it, the way it's phrased is, is that you know, one practices to refrain from false speech. Just downright dishonest speech. One practices to refrain from false speech. One practices to refrain from malicious speech or speech that you know is causing harm, you know, causing division, causing disharmony. Uh, one practices to refrain from harsh speech, you know, speech that just uh, gross, coarse speech that that hurts. Yeah. And one practices to refrain from pointless speech yeah. idle gossip yeah. now you read these things and we can again if we're not careful we can just try and grasp at these principles these guidelines as if they're an end of themselves but remember these are just the forms you know, like all the teachings all the talking uh, or reading and listening to talk all of these are forms that are pointing to a spirit, to a Dhamma, to a here and now reality. Yeah. So when we, if for instance, we read these teachings or we hear these teachings and the Buddha said that practicing right, right speech is, is uh, refraining from uh, pointless speech. Uh, so you grasp too hard at that principle. And I, I know myself, I, there was a stage in my life where, where I was uh, very condemning or judgmental of of uh, any speech that wasn't serious uh, had to always be very serious about everything and and uh, playing games and, and just messing around was was uh, I was very judgmental and, and critical of it. But then uh, you read the scriptures and you know it seems like well the Buddha's sitting there and a bunch of monks turn up and he doesn't exactly say well you know which stage of realization have you arrived at. That's not the first thing he says. He says, well, hope you, you know, hope you had a nice trip. Getting here, how'd the journey go? You, know, you had enough food lately? He said, well, what is he asking that for? I mean, the guy could read people's minds, you know. What's he wasting his time on this frivolous speech? This is pointless speech. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if we hold to the principle, we hold to the idea too tightly, well, that's the way our, our, our mind can go. But So these these are just guidelines that... The reality is that, you know, in conversation, when human beings meet each other, well, there is a way of bringing about ease and, and accuracy of communication. And you do. You start off with, a, you know, how's your mother? How, 
you know, how are your kids, how's the dog, and how was the trip, and so on. And, and once you've got a little communication going, well, then you can move on to other things. And so the reason I raise that is because, uh, yeah, there is a risk with these guidelines that are given in the, in the recorded teachings of, of becoming too rigid. And the same with the, the teachings on what is right action. Yeah. You know, it's, it, the way that it's phrased, it says, one practices refraining from killing living beings. Yeah. One practices refraining from taking what's not given. One practices refraining from irresponsible sexuality. And then you can read in the explanation of, well, what did it exactly mean by, you know, not killing and, and, and uh, not taking things and irresponsible sexuality and these lists of what you can do and what you can't do according to the lists. But it's important to recognize that these are guidelines. You know, these, are, these, are, these are forms that are, are aiming to stimulate our own contemplation. Because when you're about to do something, you're not sitting there thinking of, well, one practices to refrain from yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're about to do something, there may be ideas in your mind, but also your body's busy doing something. Yeah. So in other words, when we're doing something by body or speech, it's the whole body-mind that's involved. And so this is important to, to understand that right speech, right action, it's a whole body-mind activity, and just having a conceptual grasp of what the recorded teachings say about what's right speech and right action is not going to necessarily inform us or protect us. In fact, it can take us away from right action. You know, we can be so busy thinking about, you know, is this right action or not, that we're, just, we're not even in our bodies at all. We're not here. We're not doing what we're doing. We're busy thinking. Is, does a Buddhist do this? Sometimes a contemplation like that has got its place, yes. But to appreciate that when we're really engaged in what we're doing, what's called for, and you won't be surprised to hear me say this, what's called for is an action of Buddhist speech that's here and now. It's here and now. We're not, we're not lost in thinking about the past. Yes, there's a consideration of the past, and yes, there's a, an awareness of the future, but right action is surely action that is here and now. Here and now, whole body, mind, judgment-free action. Now, and if we, if, we, if we regularly go over this reflection, these three points, you know, we want to think about right action. Should I act or should I not act? Now, this is one of the great obstructions to right action. Doubt. Should I act or should I not act? Should I say something or should I not say something? So how do we how do we approach this? How do we you know you know, you know we, we don't not many people really do believe that it's the case we're just supposed to sit there and not make anything out of everything anything and, and do nothing I and mean, that's you know I allude to that as a as a as a possibility. But not many people really think that. I mean, most of us really do recognise there is a time to act, but how do I know the right time to act? Now, a few weeks ago, somebody asked the question, how do I know, is it the right time to sit or is this the time to get up and dance? You remember that question? Somebody wrote that question. Should I, is this the time to get up and dance or is this the time to sit down and meditate? And the, if we go through these three points, here and now, judgment-free, body-mind awareness, says, 
What do we come up with? What we come up with is, I don't know what to do. That is a reality. That's not, that's not something we're fabricating. That's not something we're imagining. We're not conjuring up the idea that we don't know what to do. We actually don't know what to do. And it's a wonderfully liberating experience to fully admit, here and now, judgment-free, body-mind, whole experience, whole receptivity of, I don't know what to do. I don't know, should I get up and dance? Put on some music? A little boogie? Yeah? Is that what's called for? I'm too uptight and I'm too neurotic and I'm carrying all my early life traumas and my you know, astrological frustrations and, and bad diet and, and really what I need to do is more boogie yeah, and put on Santana or I don't know. I mean, that's what I would put on. <laughs> A little out of date, but still I think it's, well, it's timeless, Santana. But, you know, whatever, get up. Or should I sit there and go into the jhanas, deal with the hard wiring, you know, go in there and rearrange the asavas so that they, they, you know, I'm not so obstructed. What should I do? Oh, you read the scriptures, you can get into a real mess over these things. But if we read the scriptures and also at the same time exercise here and now body, mind, judgment, free awareness, we will come to the recognition of the reality. The fact is right now what's true, what's real is I don't know what to do. Wonderful realization. If we haven't got judgment-free awareness, well, then we're going to quickly judge ourselves because that's what we were conditioned to do very early on in life. You know, you should know. If you can't put your hand up and say, I know, you know, in class, well, then you're a failure. And nobody ever taught us how to, how to enjoy awe, how to stand in awe and admire the great mystery. I mean, maybe some of you had a, a wonderful poetry teacher and, and, and did teach you that, but I certainly didn't get any of that in Morrinsville College. You know, nobody taught me about awe and delighting in the great mystery or appreciating the unknown and, and how rich and wonderful that is for discovery and for creativity and for opening up the mind and for increasing intelligence and awareness. You know, most of us just got taught this, you know, got conditioned, not even taught, we just got conditioned in this, the more you say you know, the better the person you are. And so when we come across a little self-awareness of, I don't know what I'm doing, bad, failure. Immediately we reject it. This happens. This is very normal. So, but if we've put a little effort into contemplating this, the compulsive tendency to judge you know, these things within ourselves, well, then hopefully we'll have that there. And, and so when the doubt comes up, I don't know what to do. Should I do anything? Should I not do anything? Should I say something? Should I not say something? No judgment. And we can feel it. The feeling of not knowing what to do has got a, it's got a bodily sensation. Anxiety, often. Fear. Yeah, I see. Uh, sometimes I'm on the train, and you know, see sometimes the way a mother's treating a child, and, and I got caught in this kind of agony of, you know, what should I do about it? You know, this woman's abusing the child, and uh, I, I have sometimes stopped and looked at it, and 
and realized that actually what was going on in my mind was I wanted to go and abuse her. <laughs> I wanted to box her ears, just <laughs> show her a thing or two. Well, fortunately, the situation changed before I had the chance to do that, and uh, she stopped doing what she was doing. But in situations like that, yeah, where we don't know what to do, don't know what to say, should I do or say anything at all, if we can exercise this here and now, body, mind, judgment, free awareness, and get an appreciation on the reality of I don't know what to do, and not push past it, well, then we discover something else. The tendency is, is, to, is to want to push past where we're at. This is where we're at, and we don't like it. And we want to push past it. Right action, right action is not necessarily easy. That's important to realize. Yeah. We think the Eightfold Path, oh, wonderful. Teachings of the Buddha, the more I do it, the better I feel. And it doesn't work like that, actually. Yeah. The more we open up to the truth of where we're at, you know, if we open up to what this condition is really about, in many cases, for a long time, the more it hurts. Yeah. Why did we embrace the Buddha's path in the first place? It wasn't because we were having a good time. Yeah. You don't pick up the Buddha's teachings because everything is wonderful. We pick up the Buddha's teachings because other things are not working. Yeah. What we've been doing doesn't actually help us adequately. We're having a bad time. And so... The, the Buddha said it like it is and says there is suffering. There's a cause of suffering. There's only two things that I teach, suffering and the cessation of suffering. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Everything he taught was in reference to those two things, to become aware. Well, actually, they're one thing, yeah. to be aware of this reality and how we're engaged in it, how we're complicit in it. However, the tendency for most of us is we're moving too fast and we miss it. Yeah. We miss things like I don't know what to do. Should I sit meditation or should I get more active? Or should I say something to this person or should I not? So there's a lot to be said. It's very important to, to do the preparation and to accept, for instance, that you know, when, we, when, we, when it does come to engaging in and cultivating right action, yeah, it can be very difficult. It can be very, very difficult. Uh, it's not necessarily going to be easy to say the right thing or to do the right thing. This is a, a time of year when, when um, followers of the Christian tradition are celebrating their faith, and and there's a there's a little narrative from from uh, the, the, the Christian tradition that, that I find very interesting, and where Jesus was, was talking about uh, going to uh, Jerusalem and to die. He was telling St. Peter. And St. Peter says, oh, there's got to be another way. There's got to be an easier way. And what did Jesus say to him? He says, get behind me, Satan. The idea there's got to be an easier way, that's, that's what I like to think. I, me, the conditioned me that likes to get my own way. You know, often when it comes to doing what we need to do or saying what we need to say, you know, the thing that's getting in the way is me. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want this as it is. 
I mean, a few years ago, I was uh, faced with a, an exceedingly difficult situation where um, a friend, a fellow, fellow monk, had um, gone off the rails, basically, and it fell to me to uh, tell him this was, you know, this couldn't carry on, and it was very, very difficult. And there was nobody else around. I, uh, the situation was just one of those kind of situations where sometimes the universe seems to conspire <laughs> to uh, leave you all alone. And like, like the Buddha under the Bodhi tree, you know, where everybody's rejected him. Well, he rejected his family and his wife and kid and went off and, and then left all his teachers and then eventually all his five friends left him and there he is completely alone with the great question of, you know, what is this all about? Now, it's a great image for us as Buddhists, actually, that life will, from time to time, not just once, take us to that position where we really don't know what to do. But what do we do? We just sit there. We sit there with the question, with the question. And I remember in this particular situation where I was all alone, there wasn't even anywhere and anybody I could phone for whatever reason uh, there was nobody available, no other senior monk. I was just stuck with it. And, and there's so much, remember, there was so much within me that just said, I don't want to deal with this. And I'm afraid I'll do the wrong thing, and I don't know the right thing. But just coming back, just trusting the practice, trusting the practice, just here and now. You know, don't get lost in the stories of what if. Okay, there is what if, and yes, we can do that, but those are stories. So cultivating right action, there's a body or speech, cultivating right action, we've got to let go of the stories. You know, you listen to these stories going on in the mind, but, but if I say this and say this, it's just a stories. But if I don't prepare, then maybe I'll do the wrong thing. Stories. And then we notice, little by little, it works. You know, little by little, you're kind of disengaging from the stories, and what's getting stronger is here and now awareness. But maybe I'm going to fail stories. We can't be sure about the future. That's one of the few things that are sure. We can't be sure of the future. Trust in right action. Trust in right intention. Trust, not just trusting in right intention, that's part of it, but also trust in our commitment to skillful means. You know, that's why it's important to know what the Buddha said. This is right action of body. This is right action of speech. These are the, these are the boundaries, if you like. This is the framework. So we don't go outside of this. You, know, you have to say something difficult to somebody. Well, you know, it's a, you're not telling false speech. It's not, you know, it's not malicious speech. It's not uh, harsh speech. It's, it's not idle speech. You know. And then the other things the Buddha said about with regards to uh, pointing out things to people, he says, right time, right place, right words, right motivation. You're going to basically we've got these 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 guidelines, these suggestions, these pointers, and we go through things and say, this is cultivating skillful means. So yes, we've got the right intention, yes, to do what's responsible. Okay, that's my intention. I'm quite clear about that. Something has to be said here, and my intention is to do what's responsible, the right thing. But I don't know what to do. That's true. So when we don't know what to do, but we've got to do something anyway, what do we do? Well, we refer to these, these guidelines, these pointers, and we just stay within that and then trust. Trust. And the other thing that's, that's terribly important in this is the willingness to be patient. Mm -hmm. There's a, a willingness to be patient, you know, because there's, uh, 
You know, don't just sit there, do something, you lazy wretch. You, know, you feel very guilty. I can still feel guilty if I'm not being productive. There's a certain sort of my worth is determined by how productive or effective or efficient I am. There's that conditioning there. And now one way of, con of, of counting that conditioning, we do, do need to counter that conditioning, and get the timing right, is, it, is just to be patient, is it consciously patient? Right? Yeah, consciously patient. That great, that great presentation of the teachings that they have in the Chinese Buddhist tradition where they talk about the three elements of training, Great faith, yes, we, we trust there is a real reality. Great doubt, there is this powerful question about what's right, what's true, what matters, what's real. But the third factor, the long-enduring mind. Yeah, as it's taught that uh, when they teach this, they say that you've got to be willing to make the determination to say, I will continue this practice in this way however many lifetimes it takes. Not for the next few minutes, or for the next few days, because that's what I feel sometimes, you know. So, like, sometimes I want to say something to somebody. Yeah. Just got to tell this guy, you know. Just, you, know you, you, you've probably got no idea what it's like. Well, some of you women here know what it's like living with one man. Well, can you imagine what it's like living with eight men? Yeah. All of them wired, you know, men are wired to be right, you know. And it's not easy living with people who like to be right all the time. Passionate, enthusiastic, not, you know, gentle, you know, softly, softly kind of men, you know, passionate, wild men you know, who love to be right all of the time. And sometimes I just have this, this, sometimes this there's a screaming voice and it's just, it's, why don't you just shut up and listen to me? You know, this is just, just, you know, just... I say, well, you know, the Buddhists—that's that—that certainly contravenes one of those points that the Buddha pointed out. So I better not follow that. So I don't say that. I've never said that. And uh, and you listen to it, you listen to that screaming inside your head, and you, you know you're trying to contemplate, and and, uh, and then you go, oh yeah, well, actually that's interesting. You know, just wanting to be right. Well, yeah, maybe I'm like that as well. <laughs> maybe I'm one of those men. You know, they, well, it's probably quite likely, actually, because that's just the way men are. You know, I think I quoted to the other day that that paper that I'd read which pointed out that 80% of women reproduce and only 40% of men reproduce. Very interesting. You know, what's the result of that is that men are competitive. You know, this is the way the species, we could talk a little bit of evolution theory here. I mean, this is basically how it works. You know, the men that survive, the men that are stick around are the ones that actually compete. Yeah. Men are more competitive. Yeah, it's a very interesting point. Yeah, there's no argument, there's no useful argument about men and women not being able, equally able, equally able, but it's the way men are more wired is that they're wired to compete. Well, they're always competing. And, and men living together, always everyone having to be right all the time is very tedious. But this practice of, you know, you know cultivating right action of body and speech means we exercise restraint and we listen. We listen to these screaming tendencies. i just got to tell this guy. So, well, listen to it. Say, but how long should I listen to it? Until you stop screaming. Until you can really, really feel it from another perspective. When it's here and now judgment-free body-mind awareness, 
that voice is something heard from a larger perspective. You know, that, that I've just got to act. I've just got to do something about this. And say, well, how long should I wait before I do something? Well, certainly wait until you stop screaming. Because so long as we're screaming, it's coming from a... It's being driven. You say, well, sometimes you've got to be driven to be effective. So, well, if you want to follow that path, you can. But at the very least, stay within the precepts because if you don't, there will be sad consequences. But my experience is that even if you stay within the precepts, if you're still coming from a place of being driven, where you just have to act or have to speak, then that's the energy that gets passed on. Yeah, it's... Uh, it tends to generate a counterforce. This is one of the very useful teachings that I, I know I've pointed out to you many times before from a Buddhist nun. I learned my very first year as a monk where it was pointed out was when it comes to action of body and speech, if we can't choose to not act, then we can't act responsibly. That's a good, good barometer. You know, you say, should I act or should I not act? You just say, well, can I choose to not speak? Can I choose to not act? Yeah. And that gives you a little perspective. And you're just going to feel. Now, again, this is not just an intellectual exercise. There's no way we can cultivate right speech and right action just by being in our heads. With the whole body-mind taking on this situation of, I don't know what to do. Should I sit meditation? Should I dance? Should I act? Should I speak? Should I just contemplate? Yeah. Indecision there. Yeah. Yeah, we're really willing to receive it as a state of not knowing what to do and we're willing to be patient with that, yeah. then it's my conviction that, that, that we reach a point where a new level of understanding emerges and, and, and without being too grand or too bold about it, you can you appreciate where the possibility of selfless action comes from. And selfless action is really truly effective action. In terms of Dhamma, it truly makes a difference. And you look at some of the, the great people. You can look at some of the disruptive, troublesome, troubling people on the planet. You know, but the great people on the planet, you know, who are the great people, the great beings? You know, uh, probably, and all, almost, and, and all probably, we would agree that there's an element of apparent sense of selflessness there. So, how to cultivate right action? Well, to cultivate selfless action. Yeah. I think they're the same thing, basically. And also to bear in mind uh, when we're making this kind of an effort that, that we need to recognize a time and place you know, with action. You know, that if we have this willingness to be patient, to listen, yes, we know there's a right time, but to, be, to wait, to be willing to wait, uh, time and place. You know, if, you, if we get the timing wrong or the place wrong for pointing something out to somebody, you know, maybe it's true somebody's got to hear something and you've got to tell them. And maybe it is your place to tell them. And like in that situation where I had to say something to this, this other monk who had gone off the rails and he just waited and waited. And it was about three days, I think, of agony. It was, at the time, I thought this was the most difficult situation I've ever been in. But when more accurate reflection, I realized that there have been more difficult times. Dealing with me is more difficult than dealing with anybody else. You know, as, the, as the Buddha said, you know, conquering a thousand times a thousand men in battle on your own is easier than conquering the self. 
But at the time when you're dealing with one of these situations, it can feel like this is excruciating, this is really difficult. But the, the willingness to be patient, to bear with it, to keep feeling the agony of it, not judging yourself or them or anything else, but just trusting that there is a right time and a right place. And then in that situation, it presented itself. And just the right thing was said with just the right result. And he and I were very, very grateful for it. Uh, and and that, that increased my sense of confidence. Uh, if we come from a place of attachment to views and opinions, and I've got a right to do this, I've got a right to do that, uh, you yeah. I don't know if you read that article about that vicar in Holland, in Amsterdam, who insisted on ringing the bell at 7 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Did you see that article? And I've got a right to ring this bell at 7 o'clock in the morning. He got fined, was it 5,000 euros, poor guy. Wrong time, wrong place. I mean, you live out here on Harnham Hill, where we ring our bell at 7 o'clock in the morning, and we get away with it. So far, 27 years we've gotten away with it. But if you're in the middle of Newcastle... I don't know, maybe that's not the right thing to do. Yeah. So with a great respect to that vicar, I suspect that he probably wasn't contemplating right time or right place. And the other thing, just the last point to, to make, mention in this regard, is, is a very important consideration, is, is to be very willing to reflect on our limitations. That, again, this comes into this right time, right place, and, 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 and patient endurance. That, that even if we know we're right, even if we know it has to be said or done, to override a, an embodied appreciation of our own personal limitations means that it's not going to be right action. Because the fact is that we're not enlightened, we're not limitless. We do have limitations. And so we do need to bear this in mind. You know. Yes, it has to be said. Yes, it has to be done. Yes, it's my responsibility, but no, I can't do it. There are such moments. So thank you very much this evening for your attention.